Hello, I am Eli Adashi, Professor of Medical Science at Brown University and host of Medscape One-on-One. -on -One. Joining me today is Dr. Harold Varmus, Director of the National Cancer Institute of the National Institutes of Health and 1989 awardee of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, a former director of the NIH, and until recently, the president of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Dr. Varmus is hardly in need of introduction. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you and to meet you after all these years of observing you from afar. December the 23rd will mark the 40th anniversary of the National Cancer Act and the initiation of the war on cancer, if you will. To the extent that you can, can you give us an overall sense of what we may have accomplished over the last four decades? Well, first of all, I think we've changed the metaphor. Um, it's inaccurate in my view to think about a, a war on cancer as though cancer was some single individual enemy. Um, nor is the metaphor of war exactly right. So we now understand that cancer is actually a constellation of diseases, many different diseases arising in different tissues. Indeed, the number of diseases that cancer represents has only multiplied over the last 40 years as we understand more and more about how cancers arise. Secondly, we understand that cancer is an outgrowth of some fundamental principles of biology, how genes control our development, how development goes awry, uh, how different genes can influence the, 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 um, the initiation and progression of cancer. So the consequence is that we have a much deeper understanding of cancer as, uh, in a sense, a byproduct of the way life is organized. Uh, and we have a sense that uh, there are many puzzles to be solved. Uh, when we think about progress, which is the question I'm always asked, Yes, we've made enormous progress against some diseases. We've made much less progress against others. And the challenge for us is to define um, the problem more clearly so that we can begin to make more rapid progress against some of the diseases against which we have um, prospered very little. Upon taking the helm, you outlined five priorities for improving the cancer research program. Amongst those, you propose to reform the clinical trial system. Mm -hmm. What concerns were you hoping to address, and how is this effort going? Well, there were two major issues. The first had to do with uh, what frequently happens to a complicated system that's been in existence for a very long time. Namely, its organization is no longer well-suited to the kinds of trials we're trying to run. So with the help, largely, of my, one of my chief deputies, Jim Dorishow, uh, the clinical trial system has been dramatically reorganized. The, new, the number of groups will be reduced from roughly 10 to 5. Um, many of the groups that uh, had a rather singular focus are now uh, embedded in much more complex organizations. And the idea is to have virtually every one of these groups, a pediatric group and four adult uh, clinical trials groups taking on a wide variety of, uh, of conditions because we believe that uh, there's a lot to be learned from observing what's going on with, with other cancers when you're focusing on your own. Um, the second big issue was to 
um, you know, the organizational issues were also directed towards speeding up the process of, of, of uh, getting trials going and, and, and carrying out trials and deciding when trials shouldn't be finished and, and uh, making sure that we're not uh, uh, losing the, the, the proper speed and responding to new advances in science. But the second big issue uh, is one of, of incorporating more scientific thinking uh, into the way trials are conducted. So that trials are not simply tests of whether a drug works, but they're tests of biological principles. And when a, an, an, a trial does not work, we learn something about why it's failed that's actually instructive about the next trial. So we think that can happen. And we've gotten the leaders of the clinical trials groups more closely aligned with clinical center directors and other investigators in the scientific community to be sure we're collecting the right samples and carrying out the uh, the trials in a way that is co consistent with new developments in, in oncological science. In a sense, this was the other priority you outlined, developing new questions, if you will, uh, and new scientific agendas that you wanted to mm -hmm. pursue at the time. Well, but that's not the way we're putting that into, into place. So the, the latter part of this is very important to me, and that is to get the scientific community engaged. And by the scientific community, I mean everyone, not, not just those people who work at laboratory benches, but clinical scientists, uh, behavioral scientists, other folks who are working on the cancer problem from an epidemiological point of view, from a, a medical care viewpoint, uh, and to begin to define what aspects of uh, cancer science are still deficient in knowledge. Uh, and uh, we have called the questions that come out of that kind of exercise provocative questions. And over the last year, we have uh, uh, compiled um, a, uh, an interactive website that people can go to by just typing in provocative questions on your Google <laughs> searcher. Uh, and uh, you will see that we've now uh, advertised for applications to try to answer what we consider to be, so far, the 24 best questions. We've received uh, close to 1,000 letters of intent to apply to answer these questions. And we think this is a very novel way to use our resources in an effective fashion at a time when, quite frankly, budgets are not only not increasing as they used to, they're decreasing. Much has been made of the hoped-for impact of the Genome Project mm -hmm. on the both diagnosis and treatment of cancer. Are we reaping some benefits? Oh, and tremendous benefits. are we hoping I, for more? Well, that, that always goes without saying, but, but, but the fact is that people um, at first probably oversold how quickly uh, genomics was going to lead to changes in medicine, um, and then there was a reaction, which I think is very unfortunate, of people having the kind of dubious tone you had in your voice. Because, in fact, the, the, the Human Genome Project has, first of all, dramatically accelerated cancer research on many fronts. Secondly, it actually has already transformed the way we think about, uh, about uh, cancer. Um, when I said earlier that uh, there are many more categories of cancer than we knew before, it's because using the tools of modern genomics uh, and just DNA sequencing and cloning, uh, we have subdivided cancers by the nature of the lesion. It's a little bit like saying uh, at one time we knew there was pneumonia and then we were able to identify specific bacteria and say there was E. coli-induced pneumonia and pneumococcal pneumonia and E. coli and, 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 and the tuberculous pneumonia. Uh, the same thing has happened in, in the, the uh, impact of genetics on cancer. So now we know that whereas once there were four histological types of lung cancer, now we can say that for adenocarcinoma of the lung, 
there is a type that is dependent on EGF receptor mutations, a type that's dependent upon uh, ALK gene fusions, there's a type that's dependent on, on Kirsten-Rass mutations, and on and on, because there are actually quite a few categories, some of which um, actually uh, are prognostic indicators, and more importantly, some of them um, are now treatable, not totally successfully, but with at least partial success, with drugs that inhibit the specific proteins that are mutated as a result of the mutations I've mentioned. So personalizing the treatment to well, the extent Well, make making it more precise. Yes. I think that's the better term. Uh, uh, personalized to me is a kind of euphemism. It's not very specific. My father practiced personal, personalized <laughs> medicine. Um, but we're trying to be more precise. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an incredibly important issue. And it's a way in which genomics in particular, but also other kinds of science, are transforming diagnostic categories. And over the next 10 years, not only in cancer, but in many fields of research, as a report from the National Academy of Sciences recently indicated, all of our nosological classifications are going to change. But in cancer, it's already happening. And those changes affect what we call a cancer, what we think will happen to the patient who has it, and how we're going to treat the cancer. And it may even begin to affect uh, how we prevent it. Certainly, it's going to influence um, how we screen for it. From where you sit, uh, how well are we doing as a nation in bringing innovative therapeutics to the cancer table? Well, uh, it's slower than one would like, given the fact that we now have so many potential targets identified. But uh, as the FDA recently pointed out, they've approved more new drugs this year than, than ever before, uh, at least before in recent memory. Uh, most of those drugs are cancer drugs. And in my own field of, uh, you know, of, of, of uh, cancer research and therapy, uh, there are some tremendously positive hits. And um, um, you know, we're clearly far from being able to treat in, in a curative fashion uh, as many cancers as I'd like to think we can, we can cure. But, but there are many for which we now have important uh, anti, uh, drugs with important anti-cancer properties. It's also important to point out that we have much better ways to control some of the side effects of cancer, better control of, of nausea, of pain, um, of bone marrow toxicity. Sometimes this gets forgotten in our, in our, so in our lust to uh, control the yes. cancer. But, but making cancer a disease that you can live with and go to work with, uh, and uh, you know, increasingly, as I learned, uh, especially during my time at Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, we have many, many patients with uh, lethal cancers who are actually feeling pretty good and are going, are working full time and enjoying their families. And as long as their symptoms be, can be kept under control by, by radiotherapy and uh, drugs that control symptoms and, and other modalities, uh, we're doing right by our patients. Critical. One way to measure our progress or success uh, is by monitoring the national mortality cancer rate. What's the latest in terms of the trends uh, that we are monitoring or surveilling nationally? Well, the overall trend is, is good. We have been uh, seeing roughly a 1% decline in age-adjusted mortality overall for all mm -hmm. cancers, men and women, uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. And some important um, uh, signposts have been passed. For example, uh, we expected to see a decline in lung cancer mortality for women because they're now starting to stop smoking. Um, whereas 30 or 40 years ago, they started to start smoking. 
Um, and just th this last couple of years, we've seen the beginnings of decline in, in, in lung cancer mortality for women. Now, um, one of the things that we learn from such uh, registration data uh, is that um, some cancers are declining with respect to mortality rates faster than others. Uh, some are increasing, and we have to pay special attention to those uh, that uh, where, we, where our efforts to control the cancer are not as, as, as fruitful as they've, they have been for others. If you had to pick one recent highly promising mm -hmm. scientific or clinical breakthrough in the cancer arena. But I don't, I don't have to do that. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did something strike you as particularly exciting, or would you rather well, give not me, comment on that? Give me at least three. So three. Um, in the prevention arena, or perhaps screening is a better term, uh, we finally have evidence that, uh, that helical CT scanning, low-dose helical CT scanning, can prevent death from lung cancer. Not simply detect a lung cancer and uh, allow someone to live a long time. That's not proof that it actually affects mortality rates. But we have evidence from a very large-scale study that was ended just about a year ago uh, because we had reached the point of showing over about eight years that by screening um, heavy smokers at, at an elderly age, between ages of 55 and 74, that we could reduce lung cancer mortality rates by about 20%. Now that creates other kinds of problems we need to deal with. How do we actually implement the screening process in a way that's effective and, and affordable and acceptable to the, by the community and maintain the high rates of, uh, of reduction in lung cancer mortality that we've seen in a very highly controlled study. But it's very encouraging because lung cancer is the biggest killer. Uh, second thing is we've had some of the most impressive uh, demonstrations of the effectiveness of immunotherapy that we've ever had. Uh, so we've, of course, had antibodies for some time, and that's a kind of immunotherapy, and antibodies like Herceptin clearly have, have benefit. But seeing that uh, an inhibitor of the activity of the immune system, a, a drug that's now called ipilimumab in metastatic melanoma, is a very significant breakthrough, and it makes us feel that uh, we're on the right track in making substantial investments in the immunology of uh, immunological response to cancer. And then um, I suppose a, th a third example uh, is, the, uh, is the depth of knowledge that we're obtaining by systematically analyzing literally hundreds of tumors of each known histological type for the genetic damage that, uh, that characterizes those types of cancer. And through a very large project called the Cancer Genome Atlas that we're carrying out with the uh, National Human Genome Research Institute, uh, we have accumulated an, an incredible catalog of mutations that is, in a sense, the substrate, that the, the material that we're going to be using to learn how to prevent and, and treat cancer more effectively in the future. Impressive. As we speak, uh, about 600,000 or so Americans die every year of cancer, which would be second I suppose, only to heart disease uh, at this time. Mm -hmm. Going back to the anniversary we were marking earlier on, um, and I know it's difficult to project, but if you had to guess what figures... Again, I don't have to guess. You don't have to, but uh, to the extent that you mm -hmm. care to, uh, what figures might we be looking at uh, 
on December the 23rd, 2021? Well, I'm, I'm not going to make that kind of projection. I do think there's every reason to believe that uh, mortality rates will continue to decline. Mm -hmm. um, you have to remember that everybody dies of something. And as we eliminate other diseases, obviously others may, because cancer, cancers are in general age-related. Uh, so counting the total number of cancers is not the best way to analyze this problem. The way to analyze it, just as we do for heart disease, is to look at age-adjusted rates. And uh, when we make that kind of calculation for heart disease, we can see that over the last 50 years, there's been roughly a 70% decline in age-adjusted mortality for heart and cardio heart disease and, uh, and cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, that is remarkable, but of course, there's, it's still the major killer. So we have to factor that in. Um, but I do think that we will be improving uh, the, the age-adjusted mortality rates for most cancers over the next 10 years. Uh, will we have major breakthroughs? Well, you know, they're breakthroughs because we can't predict them. That's why we call them breakthroughs. So I don't make that kind of prediction, but we have an incredible amount of information. We have strong support. I wish it were, the support were growing, but we do have $5 billion a year to spend at the Cancer Institute, and I plan to spend that well. And uh, I am optimistic because of the strength of the science that we do that uh, we will make significant progress. But I'm, I'm reluctant to say what progress will occur, or what right. the number is. Right. Fair enough. On the personal note, um, what is it that drew you to this challenge at this time in your life? Uh, you think I'm too old to do this kind of work? Well, your wife may, your wife, <laughs> your wife may have argued that uh, it may be time to take it easy, she but did, uh, she maybe does, she I'm, didn't. I'm not somebody who takes it easy. She knows <laughs> that, and uh, if I try to take it easy, that's not healthy. No, I, I had been at Sloan Kettering for, t for 10 wonderful years, and we yes. did a lot of great things there. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, these jobs have a lifetime. When you're at an institution and you have ideas for it, you usually, if you're going to get them done, you usually do that within the first five to eight years. And I think I did that at Sloan Kettering. And, um, you know, times became tight economically, and uh, I could either have retreated to my own lab and, and continued to work in my lab, which is something I enjoy doing, or I could take on another leadership position. And, um, Frankly, um, as I've said many times, when I was here at the NIH as the NIH director, I was frequently frustrated. The NIH director has very little money, has, uh, has very little authority over scientific programs, always pleading with the institute directors to follow, to, to follow uh, his or her example. And uh, running an institute always looked like more fun. <laughs> and indeed, it is more fun. I'm, I'm running programs. Uh -huh. I'm making decisions that affect science directly rather than making uh, political judgments and simply interacting with what's now an increasingly refractory Congress. So I love this job and uh, I'm very glad I did it. Well said. Thank you. On this note, sincere thanks to Dr. Varmus and to you, our viewers, for joining Medscape One-on-One. -on -one. Until next time, I am Ellie Adashi.